0: Have you ever um, been on the phone with a friend and the conversation took a turn um, that you weren't expecting and it kind of ruined what you felt like was an ideal moment to bring up something that was very important? You felt like the opportunity was gone. You lost your window. Well, that's not Jesus. You ever been in a car with a friend and perhaps wanted to share something very heavy and then you, the two of you got distracted. and? The ride was over and they got out and you said, oh man, I missed my window. That's not Jesus. You ever um, had a friend with whom perhaps you wanted to share something very heavy and difficult. You just didn't know if you had the right words or knew how to fully bring it up. Well, that's not Jesus. The Lord does not call us to have perfect liturgy or perfect words or pronunciation. We don't have to be able to lay out our woes in some special format in order for him to feel them appropriately. The Bible tells us that the Lord knows exactly what we need even before we mention it. He simply invites us to lay it down. Our coming to God in prayer is an act of faith because we are saying, God, I am trusting you to handle this. I'm not educating you on my issues. I am entrusting you. I'm handing my heart over so that it can cease to be my own little laboratory where I'm trying to engineer my own solutions. When I go to God in prayer, it is a double declaration of faith. I believe you hear me and I am now entrusting you with these issues that I have. So may we not forfeit the beautiful privilege of taking everything to God in prayer, regardless of how mundane or how deeply troubling it may be in our lives. Well, let's pray as we get ready for our second segment in our series entitled Entrusted. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, this morning I come before you needing your help. Understatement of the year, you already know this, but Lord God, I am entrusting myself in this moment and these people to you. And um, my ask, oh God, is that you would glorify yourself through whatever means you so desire. When I read in Scripture, I see that you have ordained the preaching moment to be a time where we would align ourselves with the assignment you've given to do the task that you've called us to do so that your people would see you more clearly, that your people would be edified, the gospel would be clarified, your son would be made more beautiful in our eyes, we would fall more madly in love with him than we were yesterday. Lord God, and that you above all things would be glorified. Lord God, would you allow those things to happen? Lord God, I've seen in your word where you clearly state that your desire for this moment is that we would hear doctrine, that our hearts would be, yes, educated on who you are, your character and nature, what you like and don't like, what your predilections are, how you are, your holiness. Lord God, would you fill in the blanks in our hearts where we don't fully understand you or where we misunderstand you? I believe what your word says that it's good for not only doctrine, but for reproof. Would you correct us? Would you help our character to put both feet on the brakes and have a hard stop in every direction that we're driving our lives that does not match your will for us? May we make a U-turn in the middle of the highway of life and run toward you. Lord God, would you correct us where we've gotten off course? Perhaps we started out well, but something is damaged or dented in our theology or in our, our philosophy of life. Would you, Lord God, bring us back on like a broken leg that needs a cast? Lord God, would you straighten us out? set us right and bring us to healing. Lord God, Lord God, I also believe that your word speaks into very specific and nuanced situations of life because it is living and perpetually relevant and able to speak with surgical-like precision to the issues of our day and our hearts. Lord God, would you cause that to happen for each of us as we're listening? Lord God, would you also cause us to be more appropriately settled, Lord God, in the community of saints to serve more valiantly and to be provoked and spurred along for good works. And that we would not forfeit the beautiful opportunity to live out what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. Would you equip us and help us in all of these affairs and it's in Jesus name that we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned in my pre-prayer comments, we are in a series entitled entrusted. We always like to kick off the year uh, with revisiting our vision and mission as a church. And so, you know, our vision as a church is we want to be a church that displays the reconciling hope of the gospel. We also have said that our mission is to make disciples who are growing in the gospel as a family while on mission. And so this three-part mission uh, has been broken up and serve as the template or the backdrop for today's message or for this entire series. Last week, we covered a personality, an individual by the name of William Tyndale and his um, very forward-facing role in giving us the English Bible. And so that under, underlined or illustrated for us our commitment to the gospel. And that is growing in the gospel. We are made able to grow in the gospel because of a deep commitment to engage with God's word, which is made available to the American reader by the work of William Tyndale during that same message. Pastor Ryan rolled out three personalities that we would talk about during the course of this, uh, these messages. Uh, one of which was William Tyndale, which I just mentioned. The other one was Elizabeth Elliot. You guys remember that? Some of you, many of you knew who William Tyndale was, right? Hands up if you knew who William Tyndale was, or now you do. Many of you probably know who Elizabeth Elliot is. Many of you put your hands up, a a larger component. But how many of you know who Francis Grimke is? A few hands have gone up, but decidedly fewer. Well, in much the same way, something's gonna happen in today's text, there's gonna be a relatively obscure personality uh, in the course of scripture, Uh, similar to that of francis grimke on the pages of american history but i hope that your hearts will be helped in understanding how god uses personalities that may not have big names but have massive impact on those around them if you have your bibles with you turn with me in them to the book of 2 second timothy as we take our text second timothy chapter 1 verse 15 reads as follows paul talking to his disciple timothy this you know that all those in asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phygellus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant him that he may find mercy uh, from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. Quick question, how many of you have heard of the apostle Paul? How many of you have heard of Timothy? How many of you have heard of Onesiphorus? A decidedly few. But interestingly enough, even though we've not all heard or not have heard of this character, Mr. O, as we may refer to him later in scripture because we have difficulty kind of bouncing through his name. But Mr., Mr. O, or Onesiphorus, here we go is an interesting character. While he is somewhat obscure to us in the history of Christianity and the pages of scripture, his influence is obviously not obscure to Paul at all. Look at how Paul describes the work of Onesiphorus. He says, this man sought me out zealously and was not ashamed of my chains And he cared for me in a way that you, Timothy, obviously know well. So while he is obscure to us, his work is radically obvious to those in the first century church. He is a household name for the level of care and being a responsible sibling to the apostle Paul. This is interesting. His his name literally means one who brings an advantage, one who brings an advantage. I don't know if you remember this, but in a bygone era, that was a time before the gaming consoles came into prevalence when children played outside. And when we played outside, there often were team sports that were, uh, 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 that gathered around, you know, uh, courts and uh, grassy fields and, and, and various places like that. And often what would happen is groups of kids would get together and find the need to break themselves into teams. And so we would choose a team captain and, and, and we would go through and start picking who was going to be on our team. And every once in a while, and more often than not, there were people in those groups who were extremely fast, extremely tall, extremely big, extremely strong, extremely skilled in the respective sport that we were getting ready to play. And you knew that whichever team picked that guy, they had an advantage. Well, Onesphorus is that guy because his name means one who brings an advantage. I believe that the Apostle Paul, as he looks at his life, and he has been I mean, he has, been, he has been defamed, he has been turned away from and abandoned by, by uh, whole groups of people. But more importantly, and even very narrowly sp- focused by phygellus and Hermogenes. This is important even in its placement from a literary perspective because if you've read your Bible or as you are reading your Bible, because I know you are because we're in the Bible reading plans— But if you're familiar with Paul's works, most of the time when he is talking about various individuals that he wants to mention and their impact in his life or the things that they're doing to contribute to his well-being or not, they typically are loaded up at the end of the book once he gets on with the doctrine of what he wants to talk about. Anybody ever notice that behavior? But here you have the Apostle Paul loading these list of names in the front of the book, which means it's top of mind, it's weighty, and it's heavy, and it's significant to him. He, he weaves it right into the fabric of the opening of the letter. And this is important for us. So it's, it's obvious that, that the great apostle Paul, a man who has labored much for the Lord and, and, and bore much on his back to make sure that the churches receive copious amounts of great doctrine and beautiful portraits of the Lord Jesus Christ. This man is deeply burdened by having been abandoned and having been abused by others that he thought were his fellows, Phygelius and Hermanus Hermogenes as well as these other folks in Asia. But then he spends more time talking about Onesphorus, a man who refreshed him, refreshed him, sought him out zealously, and was not ashamed of his chains. This is important to note because while Onesphorus is an obscure character within the landscape of the Bible's history, I believe that Francis Grimke is a man of like impact who is also somewhat obscure to us as modern believers, but has incredible impact during the times where he lived. While he may not be a household name to us, he is definitely a household name to them. Who is the them? The American church from 1878 to 1928. Let me give you a brief bio of Francis Grimke or Dr. Francis Dre Grimke, who was born in 1850. He was the son of a rice plantation owner, Henry Grimke and Nancy Weston, a slave of African and European descent. When Francis was two years old, Henry Grimke died of yellow fever. His will freed Francis, but placed him under the guardianship of his half white brother, Montague, Henry's oldest oldest son. When Francis turned 10, Montague threatened to enslave him and Francis ran away and joined the Confederate army as an officer's valet. Months later, Montague was imprisoned, Montague, no, Montague imprisoned Francis while he was visiting his family. Montague sold him to another officer while he, he, Francis, was recovering from a deadly illness. Francis was freed by the end of the war. Grimke's white aunts were Quaker abolitionists, Angelina and Sarah Grimke, and in 1868, they acknowledged Francis uh, and his brother Archibald as their relatives and gave them financial backing for them to attend Lincoln University in Pennsylvania. After graduating as valedictorian of his class, Francis answered God's call to the ministry, continuing his education at Princeton Theological Seminary in 1878. Grimke began his pastoral ministry at the 15th Street Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., where he served the same church for 50 consecutive years until 1928. His convicting sermons ignited spiritual revival to congressmen, Supreme Court justices, and others who frequently attended his Sunday services to hear Grimke preach. This man is a servant leader and responsible sibling (coughs) par excellence. Why Francis Grimke? Why is this story so important to us? Most of us had never heard of him, but trust me, his local church where he pastored for 50 straight years had heard of him. Follow me very carefully. I want you to imagine for a moment the social landscape, and the climate at which Francis Grimke would have stood at the edge of the stages of his church for 50 straight years in Washington, DC. Here is a man who himself was a slave. I don't know if you captured it from the language, but his mother is a slave. His father was his mother's owner. He is the product of that union. He later married his mother And now he both owns the child who should also be his son and then put in his will that they should be freed. But an older brother temporarily honored the request to free the family, but then recaptured and enslaved his own brother. This child then serving in the Confederate army as a valet. Following the Emancipation Proclamation, gets into college, graduates as the valedictorian, and then goes to Princeton Theological Seminary. Now, what the story doesn't tell you that is also part of the historical fact we just don't have time to cover is that Francis Grimke was well on the track to become a lawyer. He had already been accepted into law school and heard God's call and was gripped by the gospel and decided to go rather than to law school to deal with the issues of his day through proclaiming the law of God in the gospel. This man had three pillar principles that he focused on in his 50-year ministry. They were as follows, a devotion to Christian service, the development of Christian character, and to defeat the division that existed within the church. These were the three things that Francis Grimke made his primary ministry in focus. A man <clears throat> largely obscure to many of us, but in no way to be ignored in his influence on the local church. For 50 straight years, I want you to think about this. This man is pastoring during a moment where the pews would have been undoubtedly filled with people who on the very Sunday morning that they're coming to serve would have been preparing to shave in the mirror and had a lengthy gash in their face, a little souvenir from a former slave master who dared allowed you to look him in the eyes or maybe be slow in fulfilling the task that you've been been sent to. That man was sitting in the congregation at Francis Grimke's church. That man, there's a a woman in Francis Grimke's church on Sunday morning, who as she tied the clasp (coughs) on her sandals, had to navigate around scar tissue from the, 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 the clasp that she wore on her ankles because she was a slave. There's a person in Francis Grimke's congregation who pulled their blouse or their dress shirt over the keloid scar tissue that is rode in their back from having been whipped some decades later by their slave master. And then to sit in a church and to sit down and hear a man preach that you should love your neighbor as yourself, which includes your enemies, the people who used to own you just decades ago. At the same time, in the same town, at the very same hour, there is another man who has walked out on his porch, looked out of his plantation, seen it overgrown because the government does not allow slaves anymore. He sits down in a church service and hears the gospel being preached to him, telling him that he needs to love his neighbor as himself, which includes the people that he used to own, while yet in his heart, he's still trying to get over the fact that the government has interfered in his local affairs and made his life harder. This is the social climate. So America is deeply divided at this time. Unbelievably so, and here is a man who could have well chosen a career as an attorney with direct audience to those who live in Washington DC to fight these ills, but he chose rather to insert himself into the fray with the gospel. This is Francis Grimke. That is Brady Holcomb. So then what of this uh, commitment to being a responsible sibling or even a servant leader? I want you to take note that when it comes to a devotion to Christian service, how easy it would have been for Francis Grimke to be overwhelmed by the cultural narrative of what he should be doing with his life. Hey, you're a, you're, a, you're a former slave who's now been afforded an incredible opportunity to be enrolled in one of the great prestigious, prestigious institutions of our land. Why don't you go on and be an attorney? Can you imagine that narrative? But those who are devoted to Christian service understand that sometimes being a servant leader means that we must fight the continuous gravitational pull of popular agendas and personal ambitions. There is something awesome and crazy that happens in the heart of all servant leaders, which each and every one of us have an opportunity to be, where we must fight that pull because there are multiple voices telling us to do work that is far more personally aggrandizing and also more noble than what God may be calling us to do. Francis Grimke, who chooses to be a preacher rather than a lawyer, he has to work against the cultural narrative. One of my great mentors told me this. He says, Rod, when you're good at something, everybody's got a spot for you on their team. They'll always have an assignment for you, but you had better be well dialed into God's assignment or you'll end up doing dutiful work that was desperately below what God called you to do. Francis Grimke didn't follow the cultural narrative. Francis Grimke, even in the mirror, obviously would have had to look and to deny the personal narrative. Look at this unique opportunity that I've been afforded. I've graduated at the top of my class from Lincoln. I had the option to be a theologian or a lawyer. I've gotten into Princeton. If I can get into Princeton, I can get into anywhere. I'm certain that he had to suppress the personal narrative to pursue a more lucrative kind of life. But he chose the Savior's narrative. The scriptures say that while he was contemplating going to law school, he chose the call and the grip ministry. If you've ever talked in detail with a person who felt the grip of ministry, it feels wildly counterintuitive. Typically, people who are pressing in and doing well in a variety of different areas of life and could be used in a variety of different contexts, they then feel this uneasiness that God is calling them to do something that they themselves don't feel fit or qualified to do. But they say, well, Lord, I have to obey you, even though it seems to go against the grain of what every fiber of my brain is saying that I ought to be doing based on what the culture is telling me that I am cut out to be and do. This is Francis Grimke. I believe, going back to the Bible, that Onesiphorus would have felt a sense of that. Notice how the scriptures say about Onesiphorus or Mr. O. Notice how it says that he was not ashamed of Paul's chains. And you have this, the the, the culture has ran away from Paul. All that are in Asia have abandoned me. And you got these two guys, Hermogenes and Phygellus who have left him. Certainly, when Onesiphorus heard this, he could have clearly said, that's the apostle Paul, the person who people, he's not in favor right now. He's not a popular personality. I don't want to be aligned with him. Certainly, there's something else that I could be doing myself culturally. I'm certain that there was a personal narrative that would have prompted Onesiphorus to not want to hang out and to refresh Paul. But he zealously sought him out and sought to minister to him in a variety of different ways. What narrative was he under the influence of? He was not under the influence of a personal narrative to preserve self or the cultural narrative to go in and do something else, but the Savior's narrative to go and serve someone else. A devotion to Christian service. Where would Onesiphorus where would even the apostle Paul, despite the fact that he may not have had uh, all popular seasons in life, where would the apostle Paul have gotten his motivation to serve in this diligent way? What well of theological uh, uh, profundity would Francis Grimke have been drawing from to, to provoke him to serve the local church at such a divided time in his country when he could have been doing it in much more fruit, financially equitable ways? Well, I'm assuming that they may have been drawing from the example of Jesus. You see, Jesus not only preached the idea of servant leadership, he patterned it. Take a look at when Jesus preached it to us in Mark chapter 10, verse 42. I don't know whether well, Jesus had been out at the market picking up a couple of fish to be filleted and later fried with the, with the crew, But he walks in and the disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And here's how the conversation ensues. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. But their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But everyone, or whosoever desires to become great among you, shall be your servant. And whosoever you desire to be of, of you that desires to be first shall be a slave of all. For even a son, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. So Jesus preached that to his disciples. You want to be in first place? You want to lord it over your fellow brothers, who's in first place? But me, the son of man, I did not come to be served, but yet to serve. But Jesus didn't just preach this, he patterned it with his whole life. How do we know? Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and following, have this mind among you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and heaven and on earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. I love this passage. Oh, it's one of my personal favorites. But I want you to understand why I chose to say that Jesus not only preached pre-servant leadership, but he patterned it. I refuse to say that he portrayed it. Because when you read a great sweeping passage like that, you might be uh, interested in seeing like, oh, look at Jesus. He is a servant leader, par excellence. He models it. He portrays it, huh? Look at him. But I believe that Jesus isn't just portraying great servant leadership, like it's some sort of fashion show, he patterns it. Because his work on the cross is not a fashion show, it's a sewing class. Here's what I mean. Growing up as a little kid, my grandmother sewed all of her own clothes. If she wore anything that was purchased already in form fashion, it was because somebody sent it to her. Uh, but, but she rarely ever purchased clothes that are already formed. She, she bought patterns. She would take us down to posit, some department store in the middle of Birmingham, and she would go on the shelf and she would see a package and pictured on the package was the outfit that she wanted. And she would buy these patterns. And if you've ever seen anybody who sews her own clothes and sees patterns in these little packages would be these opaque pieces of paper with the shape of the clothes that you wanted to put on there. And she would take the pieces of fabric, lay them on top of the patterns, and then she would cut the clothing in the shape that she wanted. The reason that Jesus' work on the cross is not a picture of servant leadership, but a pattern. is because I believe that the Holy Spirit <coughs> wants to take the fabric of my life, lay it against his pattern, and cut away the extraneous fabric that keeps me from taking on his shape. He wants to fashion me also. So in other words, Jesus isn't just modeling it. He's patterning it. He is establishing a framework that we ourselves are supposed to follow and allow our lives to be surgically aligned with as the Holy Spirit does that work on us. That's what servant leadership is. It's not just this beautiful portrayal of Christ. It is this wonderful pattern that we are invited into to also follow and have our lives fashioned into. Francis Grimke, I also believe based on the testimony of scripture, was not only focused on a devotion to Christian service as a servant leader, but also development of Christian character, the development of Christian character. Here is a quote from Francis. A church's value in the community does not depend on the size of its membership, but upon the quality of the men and women who make up its membership. I have very little sympathy for the craze that is now taking a hold of many churches, merely to decrease in numbers or to increase in numbers. Numbers count for nothing unless the constituent elements are of the right character. It is the quality and not the quantity that tells in the work of the Lord. I believe that servant leaders are born out of responsible siblings. In other words, yes, there are people who have, you know, giftings and callings and things of that nature. But servant leaders are born, first and foremost, out of first people who are responsible siblings, whose, whose characters are being reframed. And so the, the, the servant leader is born out, of the, out of, the, of the responsible sibling whose person and character is always under regular reconstruction. This idea of reconstruction is actually the backdrop against which, which Francis Grimke is preaching on a regular basis. But, but, but while it was the American reconstruction that was underway when Francis preached, it is the personal reconstruction under which all of us are constantly called to. The Word of God is always working in us to reconstruct us during the summer times or when the weather is, is properly uh, suitable. I often, during my lunch break, will walk from the church's office through Avondale Estates to my lunch location and then I'll take an even more uh, uh, longer path to walk back. And one of the things that I regularly enjoy when I'm walking back is when I pass by some of the more stately and older homes and I notice that there is a construction project underway. I walk by and I'll see a porta potty, a sawhorse, signage, electrical cables and wires, buckets of gravel, wheelbarrows of cement. And I'm in no way offended, I am actually intrigued when I see this, because I recognize that the owners of that home have said, we refuse to let this structure still be the one it was in the 1950s. Let me ask you this, are your character under any regular reconstruction? I asked the saints in the earlier service, are you the same kind of Christian you were in the 1940s and 50s? Perhaps the 1960s, the 1970s? Has there been any remodeling? Has there been anything on the inside of you that has updated you and made you more suitable for the work of the day? Is there any reconstruction? Is anybody here the same believer you were in the 1980s, the 1990s? Are you, you can't even be the same Christian you were in 2000. Do you understand what I'm saying? You may be the same thing structurally, but are you the same thing? Are you the same model and addition? Are you operating under some kind of perpetual obsolescence because you've refused to let the Lord through his word reconstruct your character and your life over time? You understand that when we were saved, we fully qualified by God's grace and work for all the rights and benefits of being a believer. But there is an ongoing sanctification that must take place. I have to be under regular ongoing reconstruction. There must be an ongoing development of Christian character. This Christian character is the only thing that will help us live out the following. Listen to this litany of directives from the scriptures. Love one another, be devoted to one another, honor one another above yourselves, live in harmony with one another, Build up one another, be like-minded toward one another, accept one another, admonish one another, greet one another, care for one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, be patient with one another, speak truth to one another, be kind and compassionate to one another, speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, submit to one another, consider others better than yourselves, look to the interests of one another, bear with one another, teach one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, exhort one another. Tired yet? Stir up one another, provoke one another, uh, one another to love and good works. Show hospitality to one another. Employ your gifts as God has given you to benefit one another. Clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. Pray for one another. Confess your faults one to another. All of these one another's that we're called to do, I need a regular update on whatever equipment I'm walking with. Because the day that I got saved in the early or the mid-1970s, there is no way that I was fully functional and capable of living up to even all of the one another's at that time. My life on a regular basis is being hit with all kinds of wear and tear and structural fatigue. Lord, I need some remodeling in order to live up to all of the one another's. And so there must be a devotion to a high quality of Christian character. And this is where we see Francis Grimke in one of his great exercises of ministry. Listen to this, listen to these words. A man who is always thinking of himself in the pulpit in his administration is a failure before he begins. How little, how contemptible, is it to be thinking of ourselves in the presence of the great and God, and in the all-important issues that make up the themes of the pulpit? The pulpit, the sacred desk, is no place for a man who wants to boom himself. The center attention should be upon, not upon himself, but upon the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of God. This man was deeply committed to, listen, he, he said something else. He said, people ought to be fed the earnest milk and meat of God's word, not the husk of everything else that's happening in the culture. Because he believed in the deep development of Christian character. Where did he get this from? I believe he got it from the likes and the truths that are found like those in Titus, chapter two, verses 11 and following. Listen to me, the same grace that saved us is also actively remodeling us. The same grace that met your heart at whatever, whatever point you came to know Jesus Christ, that same grace didn't stop working when you came to know Christ in that initial conversion experience. Listen to what Titus says. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And what is it doing in its appearing? Teaching us, denying, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, that we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior so in other words the same grace that saved me is constantly working to remodel me so that my hope is on the future my heart is looking up toward the Lord Jesus Christ and in this present age I am constantly putting off the evil works and learning how to more effectively navigate my world the same grace that saved you that you cherished and fell in love for your conversion ought to be still working to actively reconstruct you today the grace does not stop at conversion because the Lord is interested not just interested he's committed that the same work that he began that he is going to complete so what has he done he gives the grace of God so that all these one another's are being perpetually lived out in our hearts and lives there was a third thing that Francis Grimke was committed to and that is defeating the division in the church. And oh, what a divided church he had a chance to minister to. Here's one of his quotes. The church should courageously offer an alternative community that conforms to biblical principles and not to the prevailing values of the day. In his, one of his sermons, he said the following words, I place my hope not on government, he said, and not on political parties, but on faith in the power of the religion of Jesus Christ to conquer all prejudices and to break down walls of separation, to wield together, to weld together men of all races into one great brotherhood. Sweeping words, but contextualize it and seed it in the heart of the person who's talking. The man who owned me had his way with my mother, and then per his convenience when his first wife passed, decided to marry her, and then in his death, my half-brother decided to bring me back into slavery. Then I get sold to be the envoy and the valet in a Confederate army fighting for my continued oppression. And then I get sold to another person and then another person. And while I'm deathly ill, nobody cares for me and has compassion for me within this American framework. It is that child who is preaching to the world that we ought to love one another as brothers and sisters. It's not somebody who grew up in Calabasas down the street from Hollywood superstars who've only known life in a lap of luxury and have been tantalized by the American dream from head to toe. This is a man who has been deeply acquainted with the worst of what America has to offer at the hands of people who he can see walking down the street and bump into at the local grocery store. And he says, I want to believe in the gospel, which is capable of making me see that man and that woman as my sister and my brother. That's the power of the gospel, not the power of Francis. You understand that everything about his social framework Would work against that? That's the power of the gospel. So he sought to fight against these ills in the local church. I believe that when people come to look at the church, you know, we say we want to be a church that displays a reconciled hope of the gospel. Here's what I hope that people would see I hope that Gospel Hope Church would be a telescope. For those who might narrowly squint and peep at what we're doing and from afar off, whatever distance they have, would look in here and see something that God is doing, even though it is foreign to them, that the telescope would bring it close when they look at the people of Gospel Hope Church. I would hope that when they squint and look, they see this vision of a future that does not have to be fractured and they can see the hope and the help of God. I hope that when people look at this display of the reconciled hope of the gospel, that it would be like a periscope, that little thing that looks like that that comes out of a a submarine. And when they take a survey of the world around them, they are alerted to the fact that this world is failing. It is falling apart and it is passing away. And even if your favorite politician were to don the office for multiple terms, he still cannot fix what Jesus Christ died for on the cross. And that they must look to the gospel once they get done looking around at everything else. I would hope that this kind of church would be like a microscope where people could peer deeply into the lives of us individually and almost at the molecular level, see what we used to be and look at the active transformation that is taking place in us and that transformation be a compelling force that calls them to say, whatever is happening in these lives, I want some of that. And when they press on us, when they peer in us, what they would not see are social agendas and programs. What they would see would be the gospel of Jesus Christ transforming us at the molecular level. Before my son went out of town uh, just last week, he was here this past Sunday. There was one final thing that we had to do before he left, and that was we needed to reaffix the rearview mirror that had fallen down to the glass on the front of his Jeep. And uh, we... um, had originally done it with some other substances and it fallen down again because it could not endure the heat or the cold or adverse temperatures. And so I went over to Ace Hardware and I walked up and down the aisles to find something that was suitable for the task. Brushing off and cleaning off the, the surface so that both surfaces would be clean and free of any contaminants that would interrupt adhesion. I found a substance that said this particular bond will actually begin to change the molecular surface of both surfaces so that when they are hair to one another and the glue finally dries, they come together as one surface. I believe that what the gospel is, is it is the glue That purpose is to take two things that were radically different from one another on a foreign material and change them at the molecular level so that as the gospel completes its transformative work, the two things come together and never know themselves as though they have been separate in the past. That's what the gospel desires to do in my life and in your life, first and foremost in our relationship with God. And then secondly, it desires to do it in our relationship with our fellow man. That's what I hope people see when they look through the microscope of the gospel here, missionally at Gospel Hope Church, that they would see that kind of connection with one another. And I believe that the gospel is the only thing that can produce that kind of transformative power. Otherwise, we only live together in harmony out of compliance. This glue that we applied to my son's mirror was powerful. It was transformative, and it was transparent, and it was transcendent. It was working beyond anything else that we had bought. It was transparent. When it got done doing its work, we did not see its residue. The gospel is invisible in many ways, except for the powerful work that it does in the lives of those that it is adhering to one another. I believe that this was one of the great ends that Francis Grimke would have loved to have seen come about, particularly if he had ever come across, and I'm certain that he did, as a Princeton theological graduate, the following passage in Galatians chapter three, verses 27 through 29. For as many of you were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and his heirs according to the grace of God. Ladies and gentlemen, it is obvious that there is a such thing as black and white folks. It is obvious that there's a thing, such thing as a rearview mirror and a windshield. It is obvious that there's a certain thing, as a certain thing as as, as 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 male and female. But the power of the gospel, transparently and beautifully and wonderfully, does not deny our distinctions, but it glues us together in a way where those distinctions cease to be a distraction to the finished work of what God is doing. And this is what God is calling us into that kind of unity. But that kind of unity is because we will pursue the endeavor of being responsible siblings that we would seek to be servant leaders. We would serve deeply, denying our own interests in the lives of one another. And so this morning my, uh, my appeal in the close of this message, quite simply, is if we're gonna do life as a family, it can't just be a part of our marketing collateral. It's gotta be a part of our DNA. It's gotta be a part of the constant reconstruction that the gospel is bringing about in our lives. I wanna pray for us. Father, in the name of Jesus this morning, I'm thankful to you for the power of your gospel. Apart from the words, that we preach, apart from the words on pages in our Bibles, we did not grow up at the foot of the cross, we did not grow up in Galilee, nor did we grow up in Palestine. But Lord God, the vivid reality of the gospel is at work within our lives. evidenced through personal transformation and commitment to the things of others more than ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for that visible, Beautiful evidence of the gospel. This morning, as we prepare to celebrate this incredible work of the gospel through the practice of communion, I ask that you would appropriately warm our hearts. Warm us, O oh God, with the tender, beautiful undeniable news that says that we can be in communion with you, the holy God, a formerly unholy people, strangers that you've now made sons and daughters. Lord God, may we be warmed by that sentiment. May we be warmed, oh God, by the sentiment that there is no force on earth that could cause us to become brothers and sisters, but the gospel can. And so therefore the person that I see on my left and right, who I do not know, whose personality does not necessarily rub me the right way, I can be, because of the power of the gospel, a sister and a brother with them. I can be, I can be brought into brotherly love with the person with whom I have an estranged relationship because of the power of the gospel. Lord God, may we be warmed by that reality. May we also, Lord God, be warned that the Lord's table is no light thing. It's no light thing. It is to be taken of and celebrated by those who know you as Lord and Savior. Lord God, we want to take of the Lord's table, of your table in integrity and not in duplicity. We don't want to be a person, Lord God, who is actively walking in rebellion to you and take of the table. We don't want to be a person who does not have a relationship with you and take of the table. Lord God, would you warn our hearts. We do not want to be a person who is cherishing or holding on to or safeguarding sin and take of your table. Lord God, would you warm us with its tenderness, but would you warn us with its seriousness? And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. I want to give you uh, just a few moments. Um, for those of you who may not have received of the elements, let me first and foremost explain to you what's happening. The Lord's table, as you heard me pray, is a serious undertaking in that it illustrates the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection, and when we take it, we remember him and we celebrate that and say we are participants in that. I want us to soberly consider the fact of when we should and should not participate in the Lord's table. I should if I am a believer in Jesus Christ. I should not if I do not yet know him. I should give pause if in my heart there is sin that I am incubating that I have not dealt with and I should take pause and I should deal with that accordingly. I'm gonna give you a few moments while the ushers are serving you.